morning is found in Romans chapter 12. Paul says in verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Father, again, we thank you for the direction that your word gives us, that it answers all of our questions. Not just the question of how to be made righteous before you, which is through the blood and sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, but Lord, how that we must walk with you. Father, again, thank you that uh, it is very clear. Help us to be teachable this morning. Because as we look at being a living sacrifice, we can make excuses very quickly. Father, I pray that you'd convict our heart. Show us the direction, the path that we need to take. That we'd be eager out of gratefulness of all that you've done in our lives to do what you tell us to do. Lord, again, we really desire, we enjoy walking with you in fellowship. And yet sometimes we get off that path very quickly and we run after the gods of this world. Thank you for your forgiveness as we confess. Thank you for your pursuit of us when we walk away. Thank you that we are secure in your love once we have truly received Christ. Pray that you would just help us now to, to see how all these truths need to be applied to our lives. Thank you, Lord, that you are patient with us, that you convict us, you chasten us out of love, not out of hatred that you give us your spirit to guide us. And even when we don't listen the first and second and third time, you very gently bring us back. Lord, yet we want to walk with you. Give us a greater thirst of, that we would desire to have fellowship, to be able to praise you with a pure heart. So we ask for your direction, your power. Make us teachable. Give us the gift of repentance in areas that perhaps we've struggled with for years, even as believers. That... Uh, as it were, we could have new starts. Thank you that, as a Christian, we can have these new starts and brand new beginnings. Uh, just guide us now for your honor and glory in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Junior church may be dismissed. Again, you can turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Back in September when we started our EPIC program with Word of Life, our teen program, we challenged the kids to memorize Romans chapter 12. A number of them have. Some of them are working on it. I would encourage you to perhaps make this your goal. I, I started memorizing, to be honest, it fell off, and I'm going to try to finish this out so the next six weeks be able to Memorize these 21 verses. This is one of the key passages of all Scripture, especially when you talk about discipleship. What does a disciple look like? What should he do? If you know the breakdown of Romans, it's very similar to many of the other books of the Bible that Paul wrote, such as Ephesians, Philippians, Galatians, Thessalonians. And that is, he lays down a lot of theology and then trans 
transfers those principles of, as far as if this is what the theology really is, in other words, Christ came, died for our sins, we are in Christ, we're secure in Christ, all the blessings of Christ, uh, of Christ or all the blessings of God are in Christ. What he, what, what he does is he transitions from this is theology, but then into the second half of the book, like I said, Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, and so on, to how does this actually play out in your life? He goes from foundational theology to practical application. And that's really what he's doing in Romans chapter 12. From, verses, from chapters 1 through 8, he lays down all, what we are in Christ. What has God done? He has saved us. We were sinners. We are sinners, but we are sinners who are, were condemned. Christ came. He died. And this is working your way through Romans chapters 1 through 8. And when a person receives Christ through faith, we are justified. We have the peace of God, and you can, and there is no more, no longer condemnation. Who can, who can say anything against God's elect? And again, we've just covered Romans one through, one through eight. My purpose is not to even summarize it, only to say this: Romans one through eight is the foundation of of why should we live a, a Christian life. Now you say, well, wait, we're in chapter twelve. What is verse uh, chapters nine through eleven then? What is that? Well, that's where Paul, trying to prove, showing God's faithfulness, actually looks back to Israel and even says this, you know, God is faithful to the Christian, but let me tell you, even to his Old Testament covenant to Israel, he is, he is and will be faithful. In other words, there is a purpose for Israel even in the coming days. And that's where that parentheses of chapters 9 through 11 come in. God is faithful. Do you agree with that? God is faithful. If he says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved, he is faithful to hold to that. If he gives Abraham a covenant and says, I will bless you and it will be through your people, and even though we've been added on, as it were, in Romans it talks about that, there's still a place. Why? Because God is faithful. God is faithful to his people. Whether those people are believers or the nation of Israel, God is faithful. And based on all that, who God is, what Christ has done, for us as believers, by the way, Jesus Christ came to die for sinners. You believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, your sins can be forgiven. And if you're here today still with the burden of sin on you because you've never received Christ, today can be your day of salvation. You can cry out to the Lord, confess your sin, ask Him to come in, to cleanse you of sin based on what He did on the cross. And he will give you his righteousness. God is faithful. God wants us to come to know him. But then God also wants us to walk with him. And that is being a disciple. It starts at the moment of salvation, but many of us miss it. I'm convinced that many of us have an idea of, different idea than what the scripture says as far as what is the abundant life. Really, that's what the question that we're going to be answering today is. What is the key to living the abundant Christian life? And I think it's found in verses 1 and 2. And we're only going to look at verse 1 today and verse 2 next week. Have you ever thought you were lacking or wanting more? Christians, I believe, run to various churches and seminars and conferences looking for something more. I'm not necessarily saying it's wrong. It's just sometimes I think... We're just looking for more, and we don't even know where the more is found, and we're just kind of on this treadmill. We get the CBD catalog in and buy a bunch of books, and maybe like this is where it's going to be found in the next book I read. 
Why is it that sometimes Christians, many times, feel empty? So, it, you know, it's like we only receive two thirds of the present, as it were, of salvation. Perhaps basing our walk on feelings and not knowledge of what Christ has done. Tragically, countless thousands of Christians flock to various churches and again conferences, just searching, getting, trying to get more from God. But let me say this, the key is not that. Again, there's the teaching out there that the key is to the victory, a victorious and abundant Christian life is to have more of God and to, to get more from Him. But it's actually just the opposite. I remember one time I, I was trying to make a model rocket when I was a kid. I, uh, I love model rockets. My, it was something my grandfather and I did. You know, he'd buy the rocket and I'd, I'd fly it. And uh, we'd... We'd build them, and I remember there was these cartridges. You could get an A cartridge, which was not very powerful, and then a B cartridge. I think it was the C and double C. You know, if you had a double C cartridge, that's the power pack that you put in the rocket that you light that makes it go up higher and higher and higher. I remember that uh, we were trying to uh, build a rocket one time, and we found to our chagrin that all the parts weren't there, and we couldn't fly it without going and getting some other parts and had to make them by hand to get the thing to fly. But sometimes I feel like people look at the, Christians look at the Christian life like that. Like when the Lord saved you, He only gave you two-thirds of the rocket. Like abundant life is there, it's just out, you know, in front of the carrot, but I didn't give you everything. You're going to have to find certain things out. You've got to, you know, you got to um, discover certain things because I didn't give it all to you. At least that's how it seems to appear. And yet Ephesians says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. Peter says that he has granted to us everything that pertains to life and godliness. Colossians says that in whom are hidden, being Christ, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And in him, Christ, you have been made complete. Now think about that. You have been made complete Every spiritual blessing's in Christ. If you're in Christ, you have every spiritual blessing. You've been granted everything that pertains to life and godliness. As one commentator says, in the deepest eternal sense, therefore, we cannot have more of God or from God than we now possess. Now that's a very important thing. When you were saved, when you received Christ, when you put your faith and trust only in the Lord Jesus Christ for forgiveness, you were forgiven, made a child of God's, determined, I mean, declared righteous, not completely made righteous, because that's the end of the process, glorification. You're declared righteous and been given everything that pertains to life and godliness. Now, I'm not saying that you don't grow. And there are things we learn, and that's all we're doing today. We're learning, but I want you to know that you already have everything that God... Um, plans on giving you on this side of death. See, why do so many then people, believers, not have the fullness of joy and the power that this fullness of blessing should bring? I mean, if you're telling us, Pastor, that I've been given everything, why do I feel low sometimes? Why don't I, I not have the joy? Why don't I not have the power? The answer is the joy and power so many are seeking can only be had by surrendering back to the Lord what He has already given to us. The key is not getting more. The key is surrender. It's not getting more of God. It's God getting more of us. Again, the key to spiritual victory and true happiness 
is not trying to get all we can from God, because that's already happened, but in giving all that we are to God. So the key to productive and satisfying Christian life is not getting more, but giving all. Now think, I want you to get this. It's not getting more, it's giving all. You can use the word of commitment, consecration, surrender. In this particular passage, he's going to use the word sacrifice. Okay? And verse 1, again, we're going to be breaking this down, and it has to do with relationships. Like verse 1 is our relationship to God. Verse 2 is relationship to the world. Verses 3 through 6 is our relationships to of gifts as it pertains to other believers. Verses 9 through, I think, 12, 13 is our relationship to other believers in general and then to the world. That's why at the end he says, don't be overcome by evil. It's our relationships. It's how Christianity, how discipleship is being played out, both with God, to the world, to others, to Christians, how our gifts are being used, Christians in general, and then to the ungodly who hurt us. But the point along the whole process is, it's not that God's giving us more, it's us giving back to Him and understanding all that He did give to us. So this first verse, and by the way, I didn't even write it down because I was concerned about just breaking it down, but the, the key, the, like if I had a numeral one as, as far as the verse one, it would be this, surrender to God. Surrender to God. That's, that starts out, and then I just break it down, the aspects and... You know, motivation, stuff like that. But it's surrender to God. Well, let's look at the aspects, the first part of this. The aspects of a living sacrifice. The aspects, if you can fill it in, that's the word. The aspects of a living sacrifice. Paul says, you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Now, as soon as we come across the word sacrifice, <laughs> you know, that doesn't ring well for us. Sacrifice? I mean, what does that conjure up in our mind? It, to give up. Uh, as I looked it up in the um, uh, Webster's Dictionary, he said, uh, to renounce, to destroy, to end, to suffer loss. Probably that's the big one right there. When we talk about sacrifice, we're talking about suffering loss. That's why we don't like the word. In fact, many times we'll make... Um, Rational arguments as to, well, he doesn't really expect that. The other word that really comes out when it comes to sacrifice many times is victim. <laughs> I found that interesting with the Webster Dictionary. But again, the idea is we're losing something. And as you look at the passage, by the way, three key words all go back to actually referring to Old Testament sacrifice. This being one. Then he talks about presenting your bodies, present and even the word service, reasonable service, they were used in association with the Old Testament sacrificial system. Now again, what is a sacrifice? I mean, you know, again, if you think about it even in the Old Testament, a sacrifice, again, is very unpleasant. Why? Because it's the loss, it's the death of something or someone. I mean, who wants to be a sacrifice? In the Old Testament, a priest would take a sacrifice offered by a worshiper, by the way, the worshiper would put his hands on the animal, confess his sin. Then the animal would be carried over and slaughtered. 
placed on the altar. Well, sometimes certain things would be done to it, but bottom line, it would be placed on the altar after it was killed. Why? Why what does that show? Because the wages of sin is death. Their blood, its blood may be poured out, and then its body would be burned. Total. That's the whole point. It's total. In fact, I was reading the story of a of a, a professor. In fact, we're doing his book and uh, as elders, looking at shepherding. And the professor um, went to Israel for a year to study shepherding. And at, during the midst of the year, about nine months into the year, he actually um, actually could someone get me a glass of apple juice. I didn't eat breakfast, and I feel kind of lightheaded. So if someone could do that, maybe soon. <laughs> um, anyways, he goes over to Israel and um, actually participated in slaughtering an animal. And he, he goes through the whole process, and he, you know, they take the, the lamb, because he wanted to experience what, you know, what did a shepherd have to do at times? And a priest, what would he do? And what they would do is they'd lay the animal down and he tried slitting the throat. The first time, it didn't even cut the skin. And then he tried it a second and third time. By this point, I mean, he said the animal was like docile and just like pathetically limp, kind of waiting for whatever. And then finally, the guy, the guy that was with him grabbed the knife, sharpened, he said, yeah, it is kind of dull. And then after that, he was able to slit the... And the blood spilled out on the ground and he said there was tears and it was emotional because an animal died. Now think about that. When it came to a priest, they were killing thousands and thousands of animals on a regular basis. It's, it's, a, it's a mess. It's a bloody mess, right? It's, it's a whole. It's all. It's, it's not that... So, so when God said something about sacrifice, this is total. This is commitment. You can't walk back. Once the animal is killed, you can't walk back. Now, as it pertains to sacrifices, let's make sure we understand. Christ offered... The sacrifice, right? Again, he, he went to the cross to be the final sacrifice. What we're doing is not propitiatory. In fact, one man said this. In the Old Testament, there were essentially two kinds of sacrifice. Propitiatory sacrifice was for putting away of sin. Christ did that on the cross. He not only put away sin, he was able to destroy and forgive sin, right? It wasn't just covered. actually paid for the other type of sacrifice was a dedicatorial sacrifice, which was in response of thanksgiving. See, there was some that had to do like burnt offering, sin offering, where it was for the sin, but then there was other thankful offering and some other ones that were actually for being grateful. The offerer didn't have to do it, but he chose to do it because he was so grateful to God for all that God had done in his life. As we look at Christ, he paid for sin. As we look at this particular sacrifice, it's not for paying for sin. It's that we're so grateful for all that God has done. And we are literally in the spiritual priesthood. 1 Peter 2 says this. 1 Peter 2.5 You also, talking to Christians, as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Thank you. Um, again, a spiritual, a holy priesthood. A holy priesthood. He says this, A holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him. He not only calls us a holy priesthood, but a royal priesthood. Hebrews 13, Therefore by him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. Peter is real clear in chapter 2. 
being brought into the family is not just a part of the family of God. We have been made priests. That's one of the greatest things, the priesthood of the believer. What is that? And we're going to look at that in chapter or verses 3 through 6. Because you've been brought in, you've been given a gift, you can offer that gift to the body of Christ in, 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 in love and gratitude for God to serve His body. But we're priests, the priesthood of the believer. It's not like I'm a priest and you're just there. We're all priests. So again, all believers, and this is to all of us. This is not just to the super-Christian. Sometimes we get this idea, well, you know, God has his really marvelous, but, you know, they're missionaries and pastors. Paul is just talking to the Romans and he's saying, listen, I want every one of you, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you need to be this sacrifice. If you're not, by the way, you're just disobedient. There's only two options. You're either a living sacrifice or you're disobedient. So let's look, break this down, knowing that it's a sacrifice, which means the end. Giving up. The first thing is it's a living sacrifice. Present your bodies a living. Paul said in Philippians 1, to live is Christ. So this speaks of because it's living. Again, sacrifices in the Old Testament were all dead. Christ fulfilled the Old Covenant by dying. But now we're called not to die, but to live. Dying, the, you know... We don't have to physically die. We have to live. But that speaks of commitment, this word living. It's a decision that we decide to commit. But it also speaks of permanence because it's in the present tense. This living sacrifice is something that I make a decision, I walk with Him, and actually it's, it's permanent because it's in the present tense. I have to do it. It's ongoing. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died on their behalf. We live for him. It's a very interesting illustration that comes out of the mid-17th century. A somewhat well-known Englishman back then, an Englishman of the 1700s, was captured by the Algerian pirates and made a slave. While a slave, he founded a church. When his brother arranged his release, he refused freedom, having vowed to remain a slave until he died in order to continue serving the church he had founded. Forced into slavery, stayed in slavery to serve the church. That's being a living sacrifice for God. I'm not saying you have to go into slavery. I'm saying his commitment was to God and his people. So it's a living sacrifice. Very, very important. Living, present tense, ongoing. Are you a living sacrifice? He wants you to be a sacrifice for Him where you are right now today. The second thing is, it's a giving of our body. It involves the giving of our actual bodies. It says present. That's, again, an Old Testament term of the sacrificial system. Think of the priest presenting. Except this verse, it's in, this word is, is not in the continual sense. It's in that point in time. In other words, you realize I need to present one one time. I've, I've thought a lot about it this week. Is he just? Is he? Is this a transition to salvation? Is I mean, does this happen at the moment of salvation? I would say this. I'm not sure where he's actually talking. I think it's this. You're going to flounder and you're going to fail until you realize you're a living sacrifice. 
And you see Christians who I believe are Christians who flounder and fail until they realize, I can't live for myself. It's almost like a light comes on. And we try to work against that, and even if we're older, and sometimes we've done it, and we've worked, and then we've kind of drew back and tried to get the sacrifice back. No, I want to live for myself. You will not be powerful for Christ. You will not be victorious for Christ until we understand we have to present our bodies. We have to yield. We have to surrender. Except when that person brought the sheep, they knew that lamb was going to be sacrificed. There was no bringing that back. But for us, sometimes we bring it back. Well, Lord, I'm not that committed. See, but notice what we're supposed to present, our bodies. By the way, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, He already has your soul. That's the real you, by the way. That's the redeemed part. But the redeemed you, the soul, is in an unredeemed body. So Paul's point is, God, has already, God already has your spirit and soul. I mean, that's one. I believe in immaterial. But he wants your body. He wants the physical. By the way, this, this brings up a, a problem for some because, see, the Greeks looked at this whole thing. Greek thinking was, well, the spirit is good, the body is bad. And I don't want you to think that. Even though the body is where you do your sinning, your body itself is not bad. The problem is, it's that you have the unredeemed, you have an unredeemed body which has, is housing your, the flesh, the old sin principle. See, that's the problem. It's not the body itself. I'll, I'll tell you why, because in 1 Corinthians 6 it says this, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? If your body was bad, you couldn't say that. What do you mean? Bad body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Well, no, body is neutral. Problem is, you have that sin principle within your flesh. That's why we need to get uh, we need to get glorified someday. Because at the moment of glorification, new body, sin principle gone, the old flesh is gone. And I mean flesh in the sense of the sin principle. Right now, our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. You're bought with a price. So our unredeemed bodies are temporarily the home of God. <laughs> but unfortunately, that's where this clash, like uh, Galatians chapter 5 talks about, the, the flesh and the spirit. The flesh being the flesh as it is inhibited by the sin principle. Yeah, go to Romans 6 real quick, verse 13. You see the same word present there. This is one of the first, in fact, I think it might even be the first imperative that Paul gives. Verse 11, Likewise, you also reckon yourself to be dead indeed to sin. The idea of reckoning there is, and I'm going to just break down verse 11 through 13. But 11 is there is this. Paul says this, if, you, if it is true, which it is true, that God has saved you, brought you into his family, that you have been given the Spirit of God in a new, um, a, a, a new um uh, being, not a new nature, but a new uh, um, life. If that's true, then you need to reckon that, count on it, that's a mathematical term, yourself to be dead to sin. I.e., God has brought you across the bridge of salvation. You are now over here. You can look back at your old life and yearn for it, but you can never go back. That's part of the assurance of salvation. You can't go back. And he says, listen, just count on it like fact. You can't go back. Now, if you can't go back, 
then the only direction you can go is what? Forward. Unfortunately, some of us don't understand that the severity of what he's saying there. And we kind of yearn for back. <laughs> we allow sin to have its way with us because we yearn for it and we somehow think, get this, it's going to satisfy. And you know what? We're used to satisfy. We can't. Why? Because we came over the bridge of salvation. The only way you can look is forward. That's what he means by reckon. He finishes out, dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If it's true that I can only be satisfied in fellowshipping with God, walking with Him, if that is really true, then I might as well just get my eyes going forward. Why should I ever go back? And yet I do. I still do. In those moments when I look back, I forgot to reckon myself to be dead indeed to sin. That worry cannot satisfy, that anger cannot satisfy, that lust cannot satisfy, that um, desire for more cannot satisfy, and only Christ can satisfy. That will destroy sin in your life because I'm looking forward. Verse 12, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey in its, its lust. What? Where, where, is, where, where does sin reign? Not in your soul, your body. That's the issue. Look at verse 13. And do not present. That's the same word. Except here it is in the present tense. Don't present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourself to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Present your members. The, uh, the members there is the parts of the physical body. The headquarters from which sin operates in the believer. That's where the... That's where the um, beachhead of sin is. It's in the body. That's why Paul says, the things that I want to do, I don't. Why? Because I'm still in this body. My, my spirit knows what's right, but I've got this body that still yearns for the old to look back. So that's a good uh, reference point, verse 13, to this right here. You can go back to 12.1. Be a living sacrifice. See, this idea of presenting, we present ourselves a living sacrifice. Does God want your money? No. Does God want your service? No. You know what really God wants first and foremost? God wants you. See, we can give our time and energy and money and service. And by the way, it's not that God doesn't want it. It's like this. God doesn't just want that primarily. God wants you. Then he wants your time and your money and your energy and your giftedness to be used for his body. Do you get that? See, in other words, sometimes we throw trinkets at God almost to relieve our conscience. Here, God, I'll do this or I'll give that or I'll call that person. It's not that those are wrong, but if we haven't given ourselves totally to God as a living sacrifice, think of sacrifice. Sacrifice was total. It's, Lord, you have your way in my life, and, and this is how it should play out. And you've given me finances, and I will, and I will give because I love you, because I'm totally committed to you. And you've, been, you've given me giftedness, and I'll serve your people. Why? Because you gave it, and I want to serve your people, because that shows love for you and all that you... And you've given me time, and you can go on and on with all whatever God has given you. But God wants you even before he wants your gifts and everything else. See, he doesn't want your other gifts unless he first has you. (laughs) And he wants it. And again, this is all in the physical realm. So here Paul is saying, now again, he's not talking about those other gifts like I just mentioned, but he says your body. Well, what is your body? Your body 
is part of your mind. Sometimes we don't think of it, but actually your mind, your brain is part of your body. And we're going to look at that in depth next week because verse 2 says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. But your mind, what are you allowing in your mind? I find it so easy to just veg in front of the TV. You know, we, so and I and the kids work against that, but it's easy, isn't it? Click, you know, give me the, you know, give me the power control. Um, be so very careful how, what you let into your mind. How can you be a living sacrifice if you just allow garbage, garbage, garbage? Or information that tries to appear neutral but is really slanted and totally against God. Be very careful. Your mind is the key when it comes to transformation. And, and that's part of the body. But it goes beyond that. What are some of the other members? Well, your tongue. James 3 says this, From the same mouth come blessing, worship, edifying, you know, blessing and cursing. In other words, from the same mouth we praise God and we curse our brethren and we slander and hurt. My brethren, th- these things should not uh, not to be. How do you use your tongue? That Hebrews 13, I read it earlier, says, a sacrifice of praise to God. That's what our tongue should be used for. So parts of our body, our mind, how are you... What are you thinking? What are you allowing into your mind? If, there's ever, if there should ever be a gate, if you should ever put anything into a prison in this day and age, it's your thinking process. Don't just sit... And, and when I say I struggle, it's not that I struggle and I just can capitulate and capitulate. I have realized you have to guard your mind. Don't just allow, Don't let your kid just... Yeah, can I go watch TV for three hours, Dad? Sometimes, you know, oh, I'm just so tired, just go. No! Help them to guard their mind. How can you pour all this garbage in and then you won't become a living sacrifice because you know what the world tells you? God. If He even exists, why would you give Him allegiance? You're number one. And it's all about today, not the future. See, everything that they're learning from the world standpoint is antithetical to what God wants and it just keeps working against living sacrifice. Our minds, our tongues, our eyes, our ears, talking about media. They did a study a few years ago and they found that by age 21, the average person, the average person has seen 300,000 commercials. Think about that. Talk about a teacher. And yet Psalm says, I will set no wicked thing before my eyes. You can go on, well, another part of my body is my hands. What does scripture say? That I should work. I should keep busy. Attend your own business. Work with your hands. In fact, Ephesians says, work so that you have something to give to those in need. I'm thankful that some of you have the opportunity to retire. But if you find that that's your goal in life, you've just missed what God wants for you. In fact, sometimes that will be your destruction. Because God expects us to work. And I don't mean physically. I'm saying keep busy for him, whether you're working at a place that gets you get payment or not. Immaterial. Keep your focus on working for God while there's still day, right? That's how Christ says. There's a night coming. There's a day of rest coming. Keep focused on him. Idle hands. Don't have them. And our feet, that's the other part. Romans 10, next chapter over, says, How beautiful are the feet, excuse me, two chapters back. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings. In other words, Where are we going? What are we thinking? What are we doing? John Scott Stott says this, When we we are grasped by the truth, 
Our feet will walk in His paths. Our lips will speak of His truth and spread the Gospel. Our tongues will bring healing. Our hands will lift up those who have fallen and perform many mundane tasks as well as cooking and cleaning. In other words, we'll be serving and serving. Our arms will be embracing the lonely and the unloved. Our eyes, our ears will be listening to the cries of the distressed. And our eyes will look humbly and patiently towards God. See, Paul says, listen, I want you to be a living sacrifice, but I want you to present your bodies a living sacrifice. It's part of our bodies. God's already got your spirit. Third, must be holy. Holy, what is holy? Holy just means to be set apart. In the Greek day, it meant to be set apart to their gods. Actually, in the Greek thinking, it was to be set apart for, for their purposes. And back in that day and age, first century, the gods were immoral. <laughs> so for to be holy to their gods meant you were committing immorality. Well, obviously, that word's been taken. The part that we want to keep is this, consecrated to God, but our God is holy and pure. So all that makes sense here. We must be holy. Be a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. I.e., we are to surrender and offer to Jesus Christ, the one who has died for us, all our hopes, all our plans, and everything that is precious to us. That's really what he's calling us to do. Everything is given to you, Lord. By the way, an immature person would think this way. And if I give everything to the Lord, he's going to, you know, if you're you know, like, a, like a teenager, yeah, and he's, he's going to expect me to marry that ugly girl over there and go to Africa as a missionary. Like he's going to really mess me over. Well, you know, we laugh about that teen that thinks that because I've read that so many times. But you know what? That's how we think. Like if we give, if we really say, Lord, it's all yours, just lead me. question is, do you really trust him? He might ask you to do some very hard things. I'm reading a book by, uh, help me out here, Lois Duncan. Is that correct? She was a missionary for about 17 years over in Jamaica. She just gave, I just met her a few times when I'm in the nursing home, and she gave me her book, and I started reading it. And one of the things that just blares out, I only had the like fourth chapter, but the point is this. God stretched and grew her by having her, and uh, Bruce, I think his name is, trust God. You know, as they trusted God, God... But you know what? It's, it's sometimes hard to grow, but you look back and you say, Lord, thank you for growing me. That's being wholly surrendered to Him. Yielding completely, wholeheartedly, irrevocable commitment to Him. I'm yours. God, or God expected that of Abraham. Take your son, your only son. The one you love, the one whom the promise is on, you take him to the mountain, you sacrifice him. Obviously, that didn't happen to Ram. But the point is this, Abraham, are you wholly committed to me? That was the whole issue. Now, God knew the end because he knows all. But, but sometimes you're asked to do, to show you where you're at. God asked and you say no. Well, I guess I'm not committed like I thought. And then finally, it will be pleasing. This is more of a result acceptable to God. In other words, if I sacrifice that's living, that is actually presenting our bodies, and Lord, I want you to use me, I want to be holy to you, what is that? That's acceptable to God. Isn't it amazing that God would find anything we do pleasing? <laughs> but he finds this. And, and this is such a key word that he uses it again in verse 2, that 
good and acceptable and perfect will. And the idea is this, as we present our bodies as pleasing to Him, then, now catch this, that word pleasing is found again in verse 2. As we present ourselves and we walk with Him and we learn about Him, you know what happens? That that becomes the ex- acceptable to us. You know, Lord, I didn't think I could trust you. Now I know I can. I thought it was going to be so difficult. At times it is. But Lord, I'm learning to walk with you and it's acceptable. It's acceptable. It's good and acceptable and perfect. No, Lord, I want to walk. And the more you want to walk with God, the more you walk with God, the more you want to walk with God. Well, let's hurry with, eh, not hurry, but let's move on. Um, Motivation. The main point of the sermon is right what we just went through. But now we say the motivation. Like, why would I do it? The motivation to be a living sacrifice. Well, actually, he covers that in the first part of the verse. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. That's our motivation right there, the mercies of God. A lot of things motivate. Money motivates. Relationships motivate. Fear, guilt. I mean, think about all the things that motivate people. I think it was Napoleon said, trinkets motivate. What he was referring to, medals. (laughs) He said, you know, you tell a guy you can get a medal and he'll do anything for you on the battlefield. Well, let's see what motivates here. It's mercy. By the way, mercy is plural, not singular. One man wrote this of the mercies of God. It's a lengthy paragraph. It's worth reading because this kind of summarizes uh, chapters 1 through 11 because that's the foundation of verse 1 of chapter 12. What happened in chapters 1 through 11? The mercies of God. Quote, Perhaps the two most precious mercies of God are His love and His grace in Christ. Love and grace. But he goes on, In Christ we are... And now these are quotes. These are just pieces of chapters 1 through 11. I'm just going to pick out. We are beloved of God. That's a mercy. Chapter 1, verse 7. And like the apostles, we have received grace through Jesus Christ. Chapter 1, verse 6. Grace. The mercies of God are reflected in His power of God to salvation. In His great kindness towards us. He's patient, chapter 2 talks about. His mercies in Christ bring us forgiveness, propitiation of our sins, an acceptable sacrifice. And also freedom from them, chapter 6. We have received reconciliation with Him. We're no longer enemies. Chapter 5, we're justified. We are conformed to His image, chapter 8. We will ultimately, by the way, be glorified in chapter 8. You know, in other words, it's a, and in fact, it's so much so that He puts it in the absolute sense, we will be glorified. In His very likeness, eternal life is given to us. We are going to have the resurrection of the body, chapter 8, verse 11, to serve Him in His everlasting kingdom. We have received the mercies of divine sonship, that's chapter 8, and of the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us, personally to indwell us, chapter 8, verse 9. He intercedes for us with groanings that cannot be uttered, cannot even be understood. I mean, it's only Him. And through whom the love of God has been poured out in our hearts, chapter 5, verse 5. In Christ, we also have been re- received the mercies of faith, in fact, faith in those chapter 1 through 11 appears 30 times. Faith. And faith, according to Ephesians, is a gift from God. That's not something we generate. That's something God's given us. Peace. We have peace with God. We have the peace of God found in this. 
Hope, when uh, Dr. Padron was here a number of weeks ago, chapter 5, it's all about hope. God's mercies include his, sh- his shared righteousness. That appears over and over. In other words, imputed righteousness. The just shall live by faith. The justified, the ones who've been given righteousness. And even shared glory. We even get to share in his glory and honor. And of course, the mercies of God, in- of God include his sovereign mercy itself. I mean, the mercy itself. To have pity on those who are helpless, hurting, condemned. John Calvin, that old commentator, said this. Paul teaches us that men will never worship God with a sincere heart. Now catch this, this is very profound. Man will not worship God with a sincere heart or be roused to fear or obey Him with sufficient zeal until they properly understand how much they are indebted to His mercy. The point is this, what drives us to be a living sacrifice is not fear of lack of reward, is not, you know, just trying to please him and everything else. It's gratitude. That's the point. You get a grateful person, you get a person that really is understanding what they were and what God has given to them, all spiritual blessings, and they want to be a living sacrifice for him. See, knowledge is the foundation for the practice. When Paul calls us to do it, he says, Listen, brethren, by the, I, I beseech you therefore... And by the way, the beseech there is not even a command. It's actually an urging, a begging. That's really... It's not in a command form even. He's not saying you have to do it. Or God is going to punish you. <laughs> or God won't reward you. He's just saying, listen, I beg you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Just think about the mercies. You want to be obedient? This is the application. You want to be obedient? What's going to drive us to obedience is not fear, is not guilt, it's gratefulness. And the more I'm willing to be a a living sacrifice for God really means that the more I've understood all that God has given to me, all that God has done. I want to be obedient? Yes, I do. You know what I need to do? Learn about all that God has done for me. That's why Francis Schaeffer wrote a book and it says, the title was, How Should We Then Live? By the way, he didn't say now, not how should we live. How should we then live? Why? Because if God has done all this, now how should, how should, what should our response be? What should our response be? In view of all that Paul has written about in chapters 1 through 11. Well, we're, we're called to do exactly what we are. We're priests. And yet we don't offer dead things. We offer ourselves, our bodies as holy, consecrated to him. Lord, use me. Lord, use me, show me, guide me. That's, that's hard, right? Lord, this is my checkbook. It's yours. You know, I, I liked what uh, the Timlins, they, they did a newsletter, and if you remember, that one of their planes got stolen. You remember that? Some of you might have known. One of the planes from UIM mission got stolen. And in their newsletter, they just said, well, it's God's plane in the first place, and he just decided to park it in a different lot because it got stolen out of theirs, and probably even in the hands of drug runners. But the point is, I mean, thankfully nobody was killed. A lot of things were stolen, including the plane, but it's God's plane. He just happened to want to park it in a different field. Lord, it's your wallet. It's your relationships. I'm giving them to you. I'm, the, your, your, my body is yours. 
Teach me what you want me to look at. Teach me what you want me to think. Teach me how you want me to serve. Teach me where you want me to go. Teach me what you want me to see and hear. And and no sacrifice is too great because it's a living sacrifice. Sacrifice means there's a victim. In other words, there's a giving. That's the motivation. And then finally, is it reasonable? Because the last part of verse 1 says this, which is your reasonable service. By the way, King James and New American kind of clash in this. The, the King James says this, and New, and New King James says, your reasonable service, and the New American says, your spiritual service of worship. And it's how the two words are being translated. The word service, or the word uh, spiritual service of the New American, is the word latria, which has an, uh, has an element of worship, but the main focus is service. That's why the New King James used the word service. It's the service of any kind, except the fact is, is that a lot of this has, has to do with priest and Old Testament, you know, the wording, and it's the feel of the Old Testament. So um, the, the New American writers said, well, he must be talking about spiritual service. I, I think he's just talking about service. In other words, your service to God, whether your service to God is, I mean, it's all spiritual, it's all an act of worship, but he's really talking about service. Give your bodies a living sacrifice. But the second word is the word reasonable. Reasonable. Or actually, that word is, uh, the word is logikos. We get logical. It's logical. This is a logic. This is a logical conclusion. What Paul is saying is, is logical. In other words, if Christ truly died for us, then we should live for him. Next week, we'll start out with talking about why is it logical. One of the reasons, again, not, not only because Christ died, not only what he did for us, but this, this is the second reason it's so logical that we would offer ourselves as a living sacrifice because of what he's doing for us right now. It's not just what he's done for us. At this very moment, he's interceding before the Father. He has given us his spirit who guides us. He is empowering us. He's giving us joy and his peace like the fruit of the spirit. Think about all the things he's doing right now. Doesn't it just make logical sense that I would be grateful and allow my, uh, allow my Lord to use me? It makes total sense. In other words, this is service that makes sense. It is totally, makes total sense, not a stretch in the little iota, that I would give myself as a living sacrifice. A couple of closing illustrations. The story is told of a Chinese Christian who was moved with compassion when many of his countrymen were taken to work as, the cool, as coolies in South African mines. So this Christian, Chinese Christian, just moved with compassion. In order to be able to witness to his fellow Chinese, his, this prominent man sold himself to the mining company to work as a coolie for five years. He died there still a slave, but not until he had won more than 200 men for Christ. That's a living sacrifice. He gave himself up for those men who were chained in those mines. David Livingston, the renowned and noble missionary to Africa, wrote in his journal, People talk of sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my, li- or sp- spending so much of my life in Africa. Can that be called sacrifice, which is simply paid back a small part of the great debt owing to our God, which we can never pay? 
Is that a sacrifice which brings its own reward of healthy activity, the consciousness of good, doing good, peace of mind, and bright hope of a glorious destiny? Away with such a word, such a view, such a thought. It is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather, it is a privilege. <laughs> Anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger now and then, a foregoing of common conveniences, a charity of this life, may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and sink. But let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be hereafter revealed in us. I never made a sacrifice. Of this we ought not talk when we remember the great sacrifice which he made for us when he left his home, uh, father's throne to die for us. That's not a sacrifice, it's a privilege. The last is, a, um, is actually a modern-day illustration. Many times we bring up old. Have you heard of the pastor Yusuf? There's a picture, perhaps. Oh, that's okay. Let me give you a, a statistic. Did you know that in this last century up to this time, estimate out of a book uh, by their blood, I think it's called, there has been a hundred million Christians that have died for the cause of Christ. In the last 100 years, 110 years, they estimate 100 million Christians have been martyred for Christ. We don't think of it that way. Here's a man, family. He, he was in jail 33 years old when he was put in jail for pastoring in Iran. His wife was jailed for about a year. She got out in 2010. He's still, and you've heard on the news, I think even Fox, the fact that he is supposed to be hung. But I find this interesting. When, when asked to repent, told to repent, Yusuf said this, Repent means to turn, return. What should I return to? The blasphemy that I had before my faith in Christ? To the religion of ancestors, Islam, the, the judge replied, According to the American Center for Law and Justice, I cannot. Repent. Repent and go back to Islam, the judge said. I cannot. That's a living sacrifice. I'll give up my family, I will give up my being able to provide for my children, I will give up my life for Christ. Does that affect them as well? Yes. Sometimes we think service shouldn't affect our family. That's American thinking. That's wrong thinking. Ministry is a privilege. Ministry affects everybody that you're around, right? Are you willing to be a living sacrifice? Are you willing to commit? Again, a sacrifice, total. Many will not experience the joy, the peace, the power because they somehow they thought, well, I received Christ for forgiveness. Yes. No. Christ is Lord. He wants you to submit to him with every part of your being. Are you willing? I got saved when I was about uh, eighth grade. I've told you the story at camp. I knew I was saved because I had a thirst. I just wanted to get in the word of God. I started out in Genesis, ended somewhere around Leviticus, and for about two, three years, I just kind of wandered in the wilderness. I believe I was still saved. It's just I wasn't connecting that I needed to commit my entire life to the Lord. Doing things I shouldn't be doing, thinking things I should not be. I was dating a girl, Nancy. She said, well, if you want to date me, you can, but you've got to go to church with me, which brought me right back to my home church. I remember going with her, and then we had this evangelist, Pastor uh, Peter Accardi, come. 
ex-rocker, got saved. At the end of the service, said, listen, guys, <clears throat> you either live for Christ or not, right? I forget how exactly he said. All I know is my heart was burning and saying, Lord, I want to live for you. I know I'm saved, but I want to live for you. I, I want to be what you want me to be. I'm tired of this sin. Was I transformed that moment to, to never sin again? No. In fact, if anything, I became more sensitive. But what that did, and he said, come forward. He said, if you can't make a commitment forward with a bunch of us who love you, how are you going to do it out in the world? I remember I came forward. And it was like, it was just, whew, Lord, new start. A brand new beginning. I remember at the snow camp uh, this last couple of months ago, month ago, um, Pastor Harris was speaking to the kids, you know, on video DVD that we had. And, and, he, and he asked the people, come forward. If you can't make a stand with us who love you, how are you going to make a stand with out in the real world? I, I don't usually do altar calls, and I'm, we're not going to sing 21 verses of just as I am. But I will say this. I'm going to bow our Let's bow our heads. If you are convicted, you know, I've been living a very either sinful or sloppy Christian life. Lord, I want to be a living sacrifice. I want you to be everything there is. I want to commit my life to you. I want to know the joy, the peace, and the power. I would ask that you would just come forward. If for no other reason to say, I want to live for you, Lord. One of the things that I was taught in Jamaica is even sometimes it's good in prayer. I stand, I sit. I've been, I've been kneeling on my knees lately. Lord, you are God, you are master, and I am not. There, this kind of works against what I'm asking you to do. There's nothing magical about coming to the front other than the fact is you're proclaiming. I want to live for Christ. I'm only going to do this for a very short time, and if someone wants to play something, that's fine. But if you want to come forward, if you feel, Lord, I want to walk with you, I want to be committed to you, and I haven't been. And I want to be public testimony. I want to walk with you. I want to be that living, holy sacrifice. And I want you to come forward right now. Like I said, we're not going to sing 21 verses of Just As I Am. I may be able to help you. It may be that you just want to kneel in the front and just say, Lord, it's just between you and I. But I just want to make that commitment. One of the things the Lord has taught me this last week is I am not trusting him like I ought to in this future. So I don't know what the sin is or what the issue is. But as we approach Romans 12, we want to make sure we're living sacrifices because everything else can't be done until you're that. Father, you know the hearts of each one here. Father, first of all, we thank you for being able to call you Father. Thank you for drawing us into your family while we were still enemies. Thank you for the sacrifice of your son. 
Thank you for the great privilege of being able to serve. Lord, I pray that you would meet the, each, the need of each one here as we together confess our sins, confess our sometimes lackadaisical attitude of walking with you. May there be a great commitment in our heart to walk with you, to be a living sacrifice. I know that you have been hitting my heart this last week in areas that just has been proved to... You've been showing me, it's just that I have a lack of true forsaking of sins. And if that's the case with here, some here, help them to become able to come up with a, a plan before you to say, okay, this is the direction I need to go. If they need to see further, seek further counsel, help myself and others to be able to give counsel. Father, prepare our hearts. Help us to even get into your book and even memorize Romans 12 because there are so many keys to discipleship there. But above all, Lord, thank you for the fact that you have given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. That it's not getting more of you, it's giving ourselves more to you. Again, I ask a great blessing on our lives as we seek to walk with you. And yet, we understand we're still in the unredeemed flesh. There's going to be struggles ahead. Help us to walk with you in your power, in your joy, in your peace, and be able to see you, through your power, overcome our flesh. So we ask for your wisdom and direction, your guidance, that, that this commitment we're making now is only the beginning. Many battles ahead, but they can be won through your power. Lord, again, bless us for Christ's sake. In Jesus' name. Amen.